Welcome to my monthly podcast titled Becoming a Sage. My name is Jan Freed, but you can call me Dr. Jan. I interview people about wisdom, how to find meaning on a daily basis, a concept I call breadcrumb legacy. I'm passionate about helping people get from where they are to where they want to be, particularly in the second half of life. I do this as a leadership coach, speaker, teacher, workshop facilitator. I also say I'm out to retire the word retirement. We are not retiring from life, but we're moving on to something else. And I believe it takes time and intentional thought to successfully move on to what's next in life. So I like to interview people who can share wisdom about how to live a life with meaning. I interviewed Paul Loper. Paul is a deep-rooted dancer, collaborative inquirer, feeling thinker, group facilitator. He's definitely a committed learner. Paul has worked in 21 countries over four decades, the first two of which were on stage. He, he even had dancing with Twyla Tharp and he was in two Olympic game, games opening ceremonies. Uh, he's created one-man shows in Seattle, Paris, San Francisco, a two-person show in London. Honestly, Paul is very interesting, full of curiosity. Paul earned a PhD in learning and change in human systems. He's now a senior facilitator for Stanford's renowned Interpersonal Dynamics course. In 2021, he co-launched Protean, an intimate retreat workshop incorporating his community group movement. We're going to explore that a little bit. So for more information on Paul, please refer to the bio attached to this podcast. Now listen to our conversation about using creativity and curiosity to enrich your life. Welcome to the Becoming a Sage podcast, Paul. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> well, I met Paul this summer at the Modern Elder Academy in Baja, Mexico, where he was a co-facilitator with Kay Scora of the workshop for the week that I took. I found Paul fascinating. His life is rich with a variety of wonderful experiences, and we're going to explore that in this conversation. So are you ready, Paul? <laughs> okay, okay, let's do it. Okay. Well, I thought we'd start off by having you describe the workshop. And again, Modern Elder Academy, I call MEA. It goes by MEA. Describe the workshop that you facilitated that I took in terms of like the purpose, some of the activities, and how it relates to developing as a modern elder. Because, you know, the Modern Elder Academy and my focus of becoming a sage both the podcast and I have a monthly newsletter. They're very similar in terms of focus and content. So um, I just thought it'd be interesting for the, our listeners to hear about a little bit about your workshop from your perspective. Yeah. Hey, Scora, my collaborator and colleague of many years, uh, and I have had the chance to be part of the guest faculty at Baja every year since before they started um, because they were they were doing um, beta testing of mm -hmm. figuring out what they wanted to do before they opened to the public, and it was then that Kay and I were first uh, included as one of the people that, or facilitation teams that they were like, let's see what's going on, how how are they doing stuff that could be applied or seems to overlap or seems to be connected to uh, what they were wanting to develop. So what Kay and I tend to bring because that's kind of what we're about in the field and the discipline and the, and the world of uh, adult uh, learning, I guess you could call it, 
We bring stuff that has to do with improv, listening to yourself in the moment, being creative, stretching yourself, playing with things that are expressive in ways that you might not be habitually used to, um, trusting yourself and knowing that uh, making quote unquote mistakes are often opportunities for learning and growth. And 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 then when, when one moves through such an experience and comes out okay, it can really help be um, help one to be more have more capacity for living in a world that's always throwing stuff at us that we can't control. Boy, that's true. That's for sure. Well, when we talk about building connection or deepening connection, you know, what are we talking about? Because I, I like to say that loneliness was an epidemic before the pandemic. And so right now, I really do think there's an emphasis on connection, belonging, building community. And I think that, you know, one of my areas of interest is um, culture, organizational culture. And, you know, organizations are struggling now. Some are saying you people have to go back to work. They want in-face contact. Others are saying you can work remotely all the time. Others are doing a hybrid. But talk to me about connection and deepening connection and your perspective on connection. And maybe your perspective even on workplace, what you think uh, might be best for this time. But, but anyway, go ahead. Well, I'll I'll start more broadly, and then I'm, I'll try to, to speak to if I have any thoughts on workplace situations in particular. <clears throat> on a broad level, as you mentioned in my intro, I have a background in dance and theater and um, the body and its fundamental role in being alive, like literally the fundamental role, um, is really, really core to where I'm coming from in anything that I'm trying to do creatively or to add value to other people's lives while I'm on this planet. So the body is the uh, home base for connection. Like if I can't connect my upper body to my lower body or my right side to my left side, I can't stand up and walk around. If I can't connect how my breath uh, integrates with initiations of different muscular contractions to enable me to you know, exert myself or accomplish some task on the basic level of being alive, which is in our and through our bodies, then I can't function very well. And I'm not going to, you know, so to me, connection really starts with all the miraculous layers of the physical reality of being in a body and being a body and how that body is also based in the eons and eons of history of physical life on planet earth. Our bodies are part of and connected to and have grown out of you know, the, the different trees of life. And we're a mammal, but that connects all the way back to multicellular organisms, which connect all the way back to unicellular organisms. And notice I say connect back to. So we are connected through our physical membership in the biosphere of the planet to life itself and all other life forms. And so that's just such a home base for me. And I, and I think in today's world, especially in, you know, modernized industrial countries, we can really be very far away from a, a day-to-day relationship to that that feels very connected. So that that's the starting point for me. Connecting to ourselves as an identity, as a story, as a narrative, as a concept. I'm Paul and I have a history. To me, that is uh, supported by being connected to one's body in different ways. And certainly through creativity, the, the movement of life happens in the moment. And the life of the body happens in the moment. So moving from a more conceptualized, um, theoretic 
way of orienting to life to something that has a lot more connections down into and is is enlivened by the physical processes of life, which are always in the present moment. I think that's really supporting of people moving into any new stage of their life, including what we could call being a senior or being an elder or whatever that looks like. Um, and I think connecting to different ways of knowing the body and, you know, I just mentioned two, kind of like somatics or the body and then theoretical or conceptual, but there's imaginal ways of knowing. There are aesthetic ways of knowing. There are a lot of channels through which, it, to use your language, meaning is made. And to me, my understanding uh, of a healthy, robust life form, and we're a very complex life form, is that reducing our epistemological channels to just two or three doesn't serve us to be as robust as we have the opportunity to be. So having more uh, media through which to find our meaning as well as make our meaning, to me is, is an opportunity that this term connection is um, inviting us to explore. In terms of the workplace, I don't really do a whole lot of work with people in their workplace contexts. I tend to work with people in an environment where we have come together for learning. Okay. So I, and that's something that works really well for me. So I'm grateful that my life has, has unfolded in that way. So I get to really be in the heat of the matter for me, which is the learning. Um, but, you know, people need to apply learning to really pragmatic situations. And that often is my, I, my job. I got to go to work. So in terms of the belonging piece that you were mentioning and the pandemic has really thrown, as you said, it's really thrown a sort of spanner in the works. Is that what they say in England? Um so belonging, yeah, we we are connected to other humans in a particular way. We're a kind of animal that is a tribal animal. We are a collective life form. We have succeeded, if you want to call it that, as to the degree we have as homo sapiens, who now have like, there's billions of us on every corner of the planet, because we've been able to be collective, we've been able to... Um, diversify how we've accomplished things by not having to have each individual member of the species accomplish all of it, right? So we're deeply about belonging. And workplaces are, in our modern industrial cultures, one of the main places where people get to live that out. I actually go to work regularly, and I work with these people. So it this, you know, 20th century or 21st century construct of how work is framed or what that looks like is built on and based on, you know, millennia of belonging to groups. Humans have belonged to groups since like we became kind of, you know, the kind of primates we are. So that's something that I think is a big, big question for the, you know, the, the current era we're living in. How do workspaces um, open their periphery, you know, open their um, aperture enough, widen their, their, what they're taking in when they think about supporting this team, right? I'm making air quotes here for your listeners. Yes. When when you when you think about supporting this team as a group that interacts with each other as individual people, I would love for our culture to like take another step back and go. We're also supporting life forms called Homo sapiens doing this thing that is fundamental about belonging, which may or may not look like producing outcomes in the way that, of course, the modern work world is based on uh, capitalism, right? Which is not where our history grew from. For you know, 99.999% of our history, we weren't operating in the context of capitalism. So there's a lot of tensions there. Mm -hmm. A pause. Right. Well, no, that's great. That's great. Well, I want to ask a question. You know, 
in the with the people that you work with, what do you find to be the major obstacle or hang up or what do they what do most people need to work on the most when it comes to your expertise in terms of movement or mm-hmm. you know what do you find that you know, shy you like are people inhibited are people you know hesitant are people closed and not as open it's you know it's a very uh, sub 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 set of the population of the planet so i can't speak on a too generalized right. uh, scale but of the people that i've worked with which tends to be mba students stanford okay. for example yes um and then at places like mea it's people who have self-selected to be in a learning environment but the learning um the advertising for mea um, and certainly for MBA students, it's not particularly advertised as somatic or embodied learning in a way that you might be asked to do movement. So it is true uh, with the populations I work with that often as not, people have stories about, I'm not a mover, I'm not a dancer. Um, we live in a we live in a broader culture, like I was speaking to capitalism. I think consumerism is another thing that in the past 100, you know, 200 years has really just um, invaded every nook and cranny of the modern you know, society scape. Our culture has people holding on to devices on their palms wherever they go morning and night, and they can click on a TikTok and see somebody do a cute little dance number. Um, I think that really only exacerbates a notion of, of consumption. Like I have to perform, I have to do something good. A lot of judgment about what movement is supposed to be or isn't supposed to be. So yeah, I think there's a lot of um, weeds in the garden that I would you know, encourage people when I work with them to take a breath and you know, every, I might have people close their eyes. Like, you know, let's not be as, as in, let's not be as distracted by what we're getting caught up with in our minds about how other people see us and just see what's happening in your body. And what's happening in your body is that you kind of just got a little bit of like a, expansion and a contraction because you're tracking your breath. Maybe that's all that's going on. You don't have to be doing cartwheels. Um, so I do I do encounter sort of what you were referring to, people who have both a lack of familiarity with being more in an embodied space or a studio kind of way to spend some time with themselves, but also a lot of judgment because we're, there's a lot of reinforcement from, as I think, I think this consumerist culture is just sort of so pervasive. So yeah, that would be something I'm like, Trust it, go with it. If it doesn't come out right or it's not what you think it's supposed to be, that's fine. It's it's something, you know, and then I, I'm really wanting to skip over the is it or is it good enough to just, it's a thing. Let's play with that. The yeah. thing itself is worth playing with. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting um, because as, as we gain in life experience and sage talk, we don't talk about how old we are. We talk about how many years of life experience do you have? Um, as we gain in life experience, I think any kind of movement, we have to keep moving. Mobility is important. And flexibility, strength, I think those three things, and I think that's why yoga and t- maybe Tai Chi and some others, you know, we could do those for life, the rest of our lives, you know, as long as we can. Um, now, one question I had is, my the course that you work with at uh, Stanford, is that called the Touchy Feely course? It has been it has been nicknamed Touchy Feely by the students decades ago. The course has been there for about fifty years. Right, I know, and I know David Bradford who helped start okay. that course. Oh, he was very interesting. He uh, he can basically say he did start the course. I think he was pretty much him. I yeah. know him from a professional conference, and I interviewed him both for my book that's coming out in 
at the end of this year on legacy. And I yeah. for my leading with wisdom book. Um, because I right. met and my son took that course when he got his um master's, his uh MBA at, at Stanford. And I'm wondering, I'll have to ask my son if he took were like, was that an optional it's, thing that you were involved in, or would everybody who took that course? It's not uh, required. It's an elective, but it's offered four times per quarter. So everybody uh, who's in a current class right. of MBA students, pretty much everybody has a chance to take it, and they do. It's it's okay. the most popular course for generations of alumni. And I don't, uh, what I mean is, he took the course. Yes. So would he have been? Would he have participated? In one of your workshops? Um, no, I don't. I don't do my my movement based stuff at Stanford. I am one of their facilitators, so I went through a training to be a T group facilitator for the interpersonal dynamics course. Um, when it. was your When was your son there? He graduated in 2018. Yeah, well, I was. You know, I was in. I was on. I was part of the pool of facilitators. Okay. Who knows? He might have been in my T group. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask him. I, I I didn't I didn't know that till I read your bio, or I didn't put it no. all. Okay. Well, another question I have here is creativity or creating, you know, how does making something support a human's process? Why is that so important? Uh, I actually, you know, I say, I often say that my two favorite words, but now I want to add a third. I often say my two favorite words are curious or curiosity and wisdom. But mm -hmm. I think with that curious and curiosity, I think creativity is so very mm -hmm. important too. So, mm -hmm. Tell me how that um, supports a human's process. I love the alliteration of your creativity and curious and oh wait, wisdom. That's not what the C. <laughs> yeah, it isn't, but to me, it all leads to wisdom. Yes. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's such a core core phenomenon. Uh, I was. You know, so far I've been talking a little bit big picture, like millions of years of life on the planet and lots of different life forms. Each ecosystem from a microscopic level all the way to the macroscopic level um, is a kind of improvisation of the different life forms in that ecosystem collectively figuring it out. There is no grand plan. There's no there's no director saying, okay, mitochondria pull back a little bit and let, let you know let the amoeba through no the amoeba's figuring out should i move or should i stay put and the mitochondria is going should i fire up or should i chill out for a minute like these are acts of creation if you will because collectively they make that ecosystem more functional so creating is connected to being part of you're not just by yourself it's connect. It's connected to options. So, uh, for the modern American, uh, having more awareness of options is empowering and gives you more choice. You can track your values more more directly if you're not just operating on autopilot. And creativity sort of puts those pieces together. More awareness. What are my options? What are the variables I'm going to land on at least for this second, for at least this moment? And then taking action, being concrete. I'm going to. Sit up taller. That was the creative choice I took just now. Out of the choices, I could have not even tracked that. I could have been thinking only about what I was going to say. But by expanding my awareness, that brings the creativity into it. And the creativity can then enhance how I'm better meeting myself and my moment 
my environment, my long range goals and values that I, I want to commit to. Yeah, no, that's, I like how you put all that together. And I know you have a, a, a strong interest in sustainability. So, you know, becoming a sage is about growing and learning and how does growth uh, interface or connect with sustainability? Um, these are great questions, by the way. <laughs> now, maybe they're kind of, uh, for my listeners, they're, they're, some of them are different than what we often talk about, but it's still all about wisdom and growing. Yeah. 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 So I, I, you know, I'm, very, so I'm 64. I'm very aware of having, and I'm a white male who was, you know, born and raised in the United States of America. So I'm very aware of how um, these deep assumptions that growth is like the end all and be all. You have to have constant growth. Like we just, we just drank in the waters of that part of how our economy was such a driver of the whole idea of our country. So I grew up in that space. Those are deep in me, embedded in my cells, if you will. And constant growth is, as we're seeing, not sustainable. That is absolutely not an actual viable model for healthy living. Okay. So it's important to, to, to unpack that. What is growth versus sustainability? And does the lack of growth equal sustainable? Uh, and what is sustainable in a way? Because growth has to keep happening on some level. But for me, I'm really getting more excited at this point in my life, <clears throat> in my 60s, about growth being qualitative more so than quantitative. And one of the ways that I could describe that in, a, in an example would be with Protean. This uh, wonderful new weekend retreat workshop that <clears throat> my collaborator Nathan Parcells and I, <clears throat> excuse me, launched in 2021. And in these retreat workshops that we do, we are uh, capping the, the membership, the, the participation numbers at 10 people. So if, if 11 people sign up, only 10 will come. And that's a really small number. But we're not charging, you know, five thousand dollars a person. We're basically just charging what we think would cover the cost of renting of the retreat site and our expenses, and giving us a little something. But it's not like, you know, a big money maker. We're not trying to do it every weekend or even once a month. And we're not. We're definitely not trying to do it with, you know, twenty people or forty people or sixty people. It's not a model for us about that kind of growth. So we keep pushing up against. How do we grow in this endeavor and what we're creating and how that's enriching our lives and the lives of the people who participate with us in these workshops in ways that isn't just measured by expansion? You know, we're not going to hit some IPO and try and be the next unicorn tech company. That's not at all the model we're coming from. So I'm really curious about that. I, I'm in, in that inquiry, Jan. It's not something I have like all the answers to yet, but one of the things that seems really important to me is how can connecting more with people where they're not just a consumer be part of how this vision grows rather than the, the, the product growing? Does that make sense? It does make sense. And what I would say is, you know, MEA uh, su supports that in terms of there's a lot of talk about, you know, the first half of life you accumulate, the second half of life you you know, uh, streamline or edit, um, you know, gardening is kind of a neat metaphor in terms of the second half of life, you're kind of pruning or 
weeding out what's no longer important or necessary to you anymore. And I think that's where you're growing in terms of, or going, I should mm. say, in terms of, you know, growth doesn't have to be bigger is better. Right. You know, and a lot of the growth in our second half of life is internal growth, mm. you know, growing internally. And um, uh, in fact, uh, one author I like, he said, second half of life isn't so much about how high you are on the ladder, but, um, you know, who have you helped when you look behind, you know, which kind of leads me to my next question, because we're kind of coming to a close here. Um, my book is on legacy. And so I like to ask all of my interviewees, mm -hmm. uh, how would you define legacy? What's it mean to you? Or can you think of a legacy story to mm. share? And this is something that I'm, you're probably not prepared for because it's not necessarily in everybody's uh, top of mind or on your radar screen. But I, I do ask everybody this question. I know. Um, it's not 100% top of mind, but it's definitely been floating around in my mind because now that I've been as, as alive as long as I have, and I have been very, I would say, you know, pretty proactive about generating stuff and throwing things out into the world and seeing what happens. And for, for the first, you know, whole big chapter of my life, that was in, very much in the performing arts. Um, so legacy in that space, especially in the dance world, um, I, I tacked on to when I was a young dancer, I tacked on to the end of the classic modern era of dance as a performing arts in the West. So Martha Graham and uh, Merce Cunningham and Paul Taylor. And there were these legacies of like, because Cunningham had danced with Martha, he then founded his own technique and his own company. And then people who danced with Cunningham, they were inspired and they modified what they learned to create. So there was a really clear lineage there. And I'm really grateful that I was part of that community during that era for this very reason. It gave me something so specific and anchored in terms of thinking about showing up, making a contribution, generating something that you think is of, of value. And it may not be of commercial value, right? Because in modern dance, the value was how powerful, how beautiful the dances were. <laughs> so I, I carry that into my life in my 60s, even though I'm not a professional modern dancer anymore. And I think about legacy in a sort of similar way, like what is powerful and beautiful and, and who's involved in that registering what, what what are the what are the circles of voices and faces and nervous systems that are taking that in? And it, again, bigger is not always better. So it doesn't have to be, oh, 500 people saw that show. Um, it may be that, you know, we only had 10 people at the most recent Protean. And two of those people were there for a second time. Yeah. They had chosen to come back. So that makes me think about, you know, I said earlier, quality over quantity, like that's a different kind of legacy that they're really seeing me up close and personal. You know, there's only, you know, 10 or 12 of us at a retreat. Mm -hmm. So over the course of those three days, they're seeing my work and they're seeing me show up as a facilitator. Um, and then if they've chosen to come back, I'm taking that away as a kind of piece of something that's like legacy, whether or not they then build something concrete out of it, maybe it just continues to impact them in, in how they make choices or show up or invest in their own evolution as a person. So there's things like that. I'm not a parent. I do not have children. So um, I think since I do work in adult education, I do think of myself 
myself as somehow leaving a legacy of the next generation kind of through teaching and facilitating, but um, but it's not as literal as if I teach a class. These facilitation spaces that I'm excited about, I don't call myself a teacher, really. I'm more like, what are you doing? Where are you at? And how can I invite you to play with more media? Like, okay, do that same thing you're talking about, but without words. Mm -hmm. How does that help you expand or link together something that you maybe couldn't see because of the kind, you know, yet you, get, you hear what I'm saying. So legacy isn't just about following, I'm speaking for myself, of course, legacy isn't just about following through a specific theoretical concept, mm -hmm. but it's also about being impacted by someone, in this case, I hope me, someone who welcomes you, who, who creates a circle of inclusion and, and, and support so you can step into yourself and go, yeah, I wanna play and I wanna play in this way. And I can go, yippee, let me play with you. No, I love that. And, you know, it's interesting when I got into the saging work, positive aging, um, it was probably around 2004 or five. And um, ever since then, I started calling myself on my because I was a full time professor and I started calling myself facilitator for learning. I know long I no longer looked at myself as what do they call it? Um, you know, I was the I wasn't the. I wasn't on the stage, I was a sage by their side. You know, I was kind of like, how can I help you learn? Because we're all learning from each other. So mm -hmm. I, I did, instead of professor, I said, I'm a facilitator for learning. And I put that on every syllabus. And um, and I said that to the students at the beginning. I said, I don't have all the answers. We're gonna learn from each other, but I'm here to help you learn. Mm -hmm. And um, no, I think that's interesting. Well, I always like to ask, my interviewees, what else should I have asked that my listeners need to know? What are your last words of wisdom here? Like, what do you wish I would have asked you and I didn't? And or or given the concept of becoming a sage and you know what what would you like to close with um, that I didn't ask? Well, it could be about movement. It could be about creativity, connection. Uh, anything you want to say. I will close with uh, the um, so three things. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Sorry, I, my, my connection unfortunately seems a little unstable. Um, I'm going to stop my video so that okay. it takes less bandwidth. Okay. So the first thing I would say. Uh, three things that are really present for me, like literally today out of the course of the kind of work I was in the exploration I was doing this past weekend. Um, the first would be paradox. Opening can actually be what enables a kind of filling up. I would also say transition large scale and small scale, we live through these experiences called transitions. This Zoom is now coming to an end. You know, my breakfast is now more digested than it was an hour ago. These ways that things are in movement from you know point A through point M to point Z is true, it all, levels. So this notion of transition, I want to support us all to track that, be friends with that, allow it, get familiar with it. 
And lastly, uh, the word that came to me uh, yesterday at the end of our, our weekend that I was just part of, the word was thirdness. T-H-I-R-D, T-H-I-R-D-N-E-S-S, um, which I don't know if that is a word, but- Well, go ahead and define it. it. Yeah, that's interesting. Go ahead. What, what it meant to me was that I, like most of us, I think, I get caught and and sort of you know in a a little eddy and I'm spinning around myself around binaries and dualities. It's like I'm either happy or I'm sad. This is either the right decision or the wrong decision, and et cetera. And I think to me this notion of thirdness showed up as something I wanted to claim and and you know get my arms around as just um, it's not a for me it wasn't about oh, I'm going to not have the binary. I'm not going to have the duality because I'm human. That's part of how you know I function. It's like my left side and my right side need to be differentiated so that they can find interesting ways to work in coordination. But the thirdness sort of like says, and there's something else in the mix too. And maybe it, maybe it brings a little of the left and a little of the right, or maybe it's just a whole new thing that mixes it up. So to me, this thirdness was a, a helpful takeaway around empowering myself to keep growing my capacity, even as I also weed out my garden. I'm also aware that at this time in my life, I'm moving towards a little bit less. It feels important to me to like, you know, pare down, pare back. Mm -hmm. And so the thirdness isn't about complexifying things so that there's just more stuff, but about allowing the paring down to have it's inherent richness and that I can meet that without getting spun up about um, things that typically can be seen as very all or nothing-ish, which is really not what's going on if I take the breath and really acknowledge it. Yeah. Well, here's what I think is fascinating about your thirdness is, you know, we have a big election tomorrow. Yes. (laughs) I've already voted we have a big election and Republican and Democrat, you know, there seems to be no third, no middle ground, no gray. It's either black or white. And yeah. um, right. it'll be very interesting to see how that all pans out. And uh, yep. I have very strong uh, <laughs> opinions as do most people. So, well, Paul, yeah. this has been great. And I always close with um, you know, my focus is on helping people make the rest of life the best of life. So may the rest of life be the best for you, Paul. And I hope our, our paths cross again. It's been a delight, Jen. I'm so honored that you invited me to, to be part of your podcast. I can't wait to hear the, the finalized version. And it's been wonderful to see you again. Okay. Nice to, nice to talk with you and see you too. So thanks, Paul. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.